As Trinity Episcopal Midtown family continues conversations surrounding racism, we would like to thank each and every one of you for your contributions to this podcast series. Our goal is not to debate whether or not racism or white privilege exists, but rather simply to share our individual experiences and to work to find ways we can address racism, both personally and professionally. We believe this can be accomplished through the exchange of open, meaningful, and respectful conversations surrounding anti-racism. We believe that collectively and as Christians, we can work proactively toward identifying and opposing practices, structures, and systems that enable racism to flourish and exist in our world. It is our hope that through this work we can achieve a greater understanding of social justice, which is simply allowing all persons equal access to the benefits and freedoms of a society and to also be free from the unequal distribution of its burdens. Samantha Rainman, and I'm here to talk about racism. No one's born a racist. We all learn this behavior from our parents, our community, our society, media, the institutions with which we're associated. And as an educator, this is something that I really keep in mind um, as I'm teaching my students. I grew up in a small community in southwest Kansas, and within that community, It was really driven into us that if you work hard, you can achieve good things, you can meet all your goals. If you behave and do the right thing and you follow the rules, then good things will happen. Um, You will have earned these good things and people will respect you if you are honest and work hard. I also really believed in that phrase that all men are created equal in the United States. I thought that's what really set us apart And I really felt that if you do all the right things, everything happens and it's always good. Uh, And that everybody is treated the right way and that everybody is treated equally. Uh, As I sit here and evaluate my life and my teachers and actions, there are several things that I think have really played a big influence on me uh, as far as racism is concerned. And I had a ton of things to talk about, but there's just too many, so I've tried to narrow it down just a little bit. I did grow up in southwest Kansas, as I mentioned earlier, and the community was pretty much divided about maybe 60-40 between Caucasians and Hispanics. We did not have any black families that were in the community that I grew up in. And it was a small community. I think there was only 5,000 people that lived in the whole um, county at the time I was growing up. We did have three Japanese families that lived there, 
and uh, several different members of the community had always assured me that they were the, quote, good Japs. And this is a reference back to World War II. Uh, Even as a child, I felt that was really interesting that we had to designate good Japs, but not good Germans. And whenever I inquired about this to uh, the adults in my life, no one could give me a satisfactory answer as to why it was important to distinguish one group from the other. As I said earlier, we didn't have any blacks that were in my small town. And it was interesting the range of things that I heard said about them. Um, There were some people, but not a lot, that did use the N-word. And it just always sounded so hateful and mean. It was disturbing. Many people, like today, when they were talking about blacks, they did that hushed tone thing, which obviously means there's something secret or mysterious about people who were black. Um, There was definitely a vibe that people who were black were in in fear as humans but superior as athletes. And then years later, we have Jimmy the Greek making the comment that he did about blacks and their athleticism. But that idea was not new. It was definitely something that many people talked about prior to that. Some people were indifferent. They didn't know anybody anybody that was black, so they really didn't seem to have an opinion. Uh, And others, definitely, you could tell that there was a dislike of black people. A lot of jokes were told when I was growing up and included jokes about African-Americans. And that leads me to an incident when I was young. I was probably second grade. And I came home. I'd heard this great joke at school. And people laughed. And so I wanted to impress my father. And we were out in this field gathering something. And so I told him this joke. And it was about black people. That was the punchline. It was very negative towards black people. My father didn't laugh at the joke, which horrified me. I was trying to figure out, did I tell it wrong? Did I have the wrong punchline? And he never told me not to say those kind of jokes either. But he told me a story about when he was a football player at Kansas State University. And the best player on the team was a black man named Verl Schweitzer. And my dad and Verl were good friends, and my dad had a lot of respect for him and the other black players on the team. And so what my dad told me is that when they played football in the South, Verl and the other players like him couldn't get out and eat in the restaurants if they were eating in a restaurant. If they happened to be spending the night in a hotel, Verl and the other black members of the K-State football team were not allowed to get out and sleep in the hotel. And I couldn't understand this. Here, this is the best player on the team. He works hard. He's earned all the respect. Why can't he go eat in a restaurant? And why can't he go sleep in these hotels? And my dad said it was because he was black, because of the color of his skin. And that really impacted me a great deal because it kind of blew a lot of these things out of the water as to what I had been told as. I would like to say that after that conversation with my dad, I never ever told a racist joke, but that would be a lie. I know that I I did. I'm not proud of it, but we're to be honest and I'm being honest. They weren't always all about black people, but I had done that.
My mom had read the book Roots and loved it. And when the miniseries came out, we watched it. So I'm an 11-year-old, and I'm watching how these white men are chasing down these black men. I'm seeing them coming across in the boat. I'm seeing all the horrors of slavery. And there was no way after watching that that I could ever listen to anybody defend that, yeah, some slave owners were bad, but most of them were good. Um, That really stuck with me as well. I came down to Texas and I worked, um, I got my first job in the Galena Park School District, which was fantastic. It also had a lot of minorities there. And this is the first time I really had a good opportunity to work with and form bonds with people that were black. And it was a great experience for me. Except I had a student one year and we're taught as a sixth grade and we're talking about what we're going to be when we grow up. And Jonathan was super smart and funny and did great jobs on his work and a wonderful kid. And when I got to him, I noticed that his face was not as lit up as everybody else as they're talking about their future. And he looked at me and he looked at the class and he goes, who are we kidding? I'm a black kid growing up in fidelity. I'll be lucky if I'm alive with if I'm 18, let alone go to college. And he was dead serious. That broke my heart. And working in that school district, we have wonderful teachers who do everything they can to be good teachers and to help all their students. But it's really when the first time I got to see how the playing field is not level for everybody. That for some people, getting to the top is a lot easier because they're already three quarters of the way up the hill. Later on, I was transferred to a different school within the same uh, school district. And so this is where it really gets me, you know, I, where I see that there are implicit biases that I have um, taken in, even though I'm against racism, but those things that just kind of sit there underneath the surface. So it was in August and there are seven teachers. We're all in a team and we're in a classroom and we're looking at the rosters of the students that we're going to have that year. Five of us are white and two of us are black. And as we're looking at the names, we're laughing or cracking up or making jokes about some of the names that these kids have, because some of them Uh, We're a little bit far out as what we were concerned. I do want to point out that all of us were laughing and making comments. But at one point, Erica, who is black, said, this is why I named my kids Nicole and Noah. I don't want anybody to know they're black until they meet them. I don't want them to look at a piece of paper and already make judgments on who they are before they meet them. And I have to tell you, That hit me like a sucker punch in the stomach because at that point I realized that's exactly what all of us were doing in that room. We're making uh, opinions, forming opinions about these kids based on the names and not really waiting to see what their character is. Uh, And I felt really bad. And I think all of us did. I mean, we all just kind of sat there and, and took that in. This was at the same time there were reports coming out, studies done at universities where if you had two resumes and they're exactly the same, but one of them has a name that sounded more ethnic, that was the term they used at that time, that person probably was not going to get hired. Regardless if they had the same 
qualifications. And so that really made me sit there and think about what are these underlying biases that I have that I haven't really recognized before. And the great thing about those couple of years with Erica and John is that they were able to trust us enough to tell us their stories. There was also a comedian at the time, and I don't know if it was Chris Rock or somebody else, and one of his bits was about driving while black. And I had seen it on Comedy Central, and we talked about that. And, you know, it's not uh, the exception to the rule. It definitely is the rule. And John and Erica, for the next couple of years I worked with them, would tell us stories about what had happened to them or to people in their family uh, with the police. And it was infuriating and upsetting. And once again, it goes back to those values that I'd been taught at the beginning or about what it was to be in America and that we're all created equal. And if you're doing the right thing, good things will happen and you will earn respect. And um, also that the police were mostly good. You know, mistakes can happen, but police are mostly good. I, you know, at that point in time, I still had it in my head that the police won't arrest you if you haven't done something, given them a reason to. And after listening to these two people tell their story, and also two instances, two personal incidences I had with the police, I realized that's not the case at all. Um, and so that that those couple years with them uh, being such good friends and telling their story and me listening and believing um, really helped me to do a better job about self-reflection and checking myself. I'm not going to say that I don't have thoughts that are wrong and that sometimes I speak before I think, but I do know that when I do that, I, it hits me hard uh, in my heart and in my head where I have to sit there and um, reflect. Where did this come from? Why did I say that? And uh, try and make amends if that's what needs to happen. As an adult, I never saw myself as someone who was racist. I didn't use racial slurs. I've even challenged people who have used those in my presence and talked to them about that. I loved all my students and my faculty friends, regardless of their ethnicity or their religion. I love people. I find them fascinating, and I want to know about their experiences and who they are. Yet somehow, those negative comments and beliefs that I heard as a child not from my parents, but from other members of my family, people in my community, and my peers, took root. They never flourished, but like a weed, every now and then they would pop up and break the surface. So now it is my job to recognize these weeds, known as implicit bias, and root it out. Thank you, Samantha, for your service and for helping to make the educational system a more fair and equitable system. It would be naive for society to believe that teachers are immune to social biases. So thank you for your transparency. In 2017, a survey was conducted and one-third of the teachers believe that inequality in education was mainly due to African Americans 
lacking motivation or willpower to pull themselves out of poverty. However, this miseducation is what continues to perpetuate systemic racism in our educational systems. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once stated, quote, It's all right to tell a man to lift himself by his own bootstraps, but it is cruel just to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps, end quote. The United States is only a century and a half removed from slavery of African Americans and its anti-literacy laws which denied enslaved people the right to read and write. Post-slavery, this practice continued with Jim Crow laws continuing to deny African Americans the right to an equal and better education by enforcing segregation laws, exclusionary zoning policies that kept African Americans from buying homes in high-performing school districts, tax policies that prevented African Americans' wealth accumulation, and mass incarceration that removed parents from the homes of African American children, thereby creating an undue economic burden. As we continue to have these conversations around racism, Collectively, we must work toward equity and anti-racism in our educational system. We must reject policies and systems that create barriers for people of color by demanding increased funding to school districts that lack the resources for students to thrive and learn. Your voice matters, and by using it, this will make our society a better place for marginalized groups to have a fair, just, and more equitable opportunity. Our children are our future, and if we fail to give them the resources they require to be a part of making America truly great, we will all fail in this process. Let us bow our heads in prayer, and we pray for our children. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with the joy and care of children. Give us calm and strength and patient wisdom as we bring them up, that we may teach them to love whatever is just and true and good, following the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. My friends, until then, we'll see you next time. Uh, as we continue our podcast series through the month of August 2020. Please take care of yourselves and each other. Blessings to you all. <music>